what we call the story of the prodigal son, uh, it might be the most complex, it might be the most provocative and compelling story that Jesus tells, especially when we do some cultural background work on it to actually consider what is it that they were hearing him say. When we think about how it might have landed on a first century Jewish audience, and we're going to do some of that in a few minutes. Um, and I would say that I think the story, uh, the, the story is kind of a spiritual Rorschach test, right? It can hit us in different ways and at various depths, though its basic point is clear enough. And what we call the literary context is important to help us make sense of why Jesus is telling this story in the first place, or at the very least, why Luke has him telling it here in, uh, in chapter 15. Verse 1 begins of, of chapter 15, not in our reading today, but this gives us that, that context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. As far as they're concerned, anyone with any religious sense should know better than to have a tax collector, particularly Matthew, in his crew. And now all these other swindlers are coming around. Jesus must be a fraud. He must be a heretic of some kind if he's associating with these Caesar-loving traitors to Israel. So Jesus is responding creatively to their grumbling by telling them some stories. Just a little mini-lesson in there. Maybe whenever you're accused or attacked or you're complained against or what have you, maybe stop and say, how can I creatively respond to this. It might give you both enough time and enough content to, to respond a little better. Just a little mini, that's freebie this morning. I just thought about that, but um, it would help me a lot too. So Jesus responding creatively, and first he tells the story of a shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 sheep in the open country to go and find the one that's missing. And when he does, he hoists it on his shoulders, right? Incredible picture. And he calls his friends and his neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Nobody wants to go to a party of one, right? So he's inviting to celebrate with him. And then Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and then sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The pattern's pretty simple, right? In both stories, something valuable is lost. Someone starts diligently looking, and then they find it. And then they call for a celebration, because it's that important. And likewise, Jesus is seeking out those who aren't simply outsiders, but who he knows are lost in their sin which is an all-important detail. Jesus isn't merely captain inclusion, as some are apt to suggest. He's rescuing people from lives of serial lostness. And when they repent, he's calling for everyone to rejoice. This is what all of heaven is doing, he's saying. And we should be joining in with that. And though the first two parables are relatively simple, they're pretty uncontroversial, I would say, the stakes are significantly higher in this third story, particularly because what's lost are two sons. And Jesus is already treading into, into the world of household codes and into family and into village and into just conventions. These are two lost sons, not one, mind you. 
And this patriarch, a father whose response is anything but conventional, as far as they were concerned, still the pattern is there, right? The story is radical in the truest sense of the word. Jesus is digging around and fertilizing the roots of Israel's tree, uh, as in last Sunday's gospel. To see uh, this, this tree, to see this fruit, to become fruitful and to see it live up to what it was planted to do, what they were planted to do. Jesus is concerned actually about the fundamentals of their faith, what they believe about this God that they claim is the center of their self-understanding and the center of their culture. And there's a timelessness actually to this story as well, which makes it even more provocative and, and compelling. It can dig at those same roots for us too if we will let it. Who is this God that we claim to worship? And on this point, let me just detour for one moment before we get into the details of the parable. Last year I read a lecture from an NYU psychologist named Dr. Paul Vitz. And it's about what he calls the theory of the defective father. An atheist in his early years, uh, the early years of his career, Dr. Witz has based much of his research, actually, and his practice on the psychology of religion and, in, and of atheism itself. And in the lecture, he shares one story after another of prominent atheists whose relationships to their fathers was profoundly difficult in one way or another because of abuse, or abandonment, emotional abdication, deception, or even an early death, which many, many young children experience as a kind of abandonment. So he talks about Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, philosophers Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Ludwig Feuerbach, and Albert Camus. He tells the story of Madeleine Murray O'Hare, the main operative against prayer in the schools in the 1960s, if you don't know that name. And in the biography that was uh, her biography written by her son William, Madeleine had a violent hatred of her father. When William was eight years old, he remembers Madeleine chasing her dad with a 10-inch butcher knife. This also shares the story of one of his colleagues or a contemporary, the story of the famous psychologist Albert Ellis who was known widely for developing what we call rational emotive behavior therapy. It's a significant piece, not, not everything, but a significant piece of modern counseling. And Ellis was an outspoken atheist, notoriously harsh and caustic, right, in his critiques of religion. Dr. Witz uh, often debated him, actually, in public forums. And after one debate, the surly Ellis confronted Witz and told him his theory was absurd this thing about fathers, and that he himself had gotten along just fine with his father. But when his biography was published, Witz read it and discovered that Ellis's father had abandoned his mother in her mental condition, which worsened and left Ellis and his brother living on the streets in 1930s New York. That's anything but fine. So to be clear, Dr. Witz, is, he's not arguing that all atheists have issues with their father or that every bad father situation leads to atheism. He's not doing that. His point is that a painful experience with one's father is a unique burden mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and it has a persistent way of affecting one's feelings about and ideas of God. 
Psychologists, whether they're believing or unbelieving, they seem to agree that our mothers have an equally profound effect, but it's different. All this to say, I think this story Jesus told 2,000 years ago knows something about us. It's deep calling to deep in the words of Psalm 42, offering a healing corrective and even an encouragement for our fragile conceptions of God and all that affects them. Jesus is offering even the Pharisees and scribes a picture of the Lord that is not their severe and distant judge concerned only with performance and adherence to tradition. In Jesus, through his life and through his words, God is presented in a fatherly relationship to humanity, his sons and daughters, not only to Jesus. God is clearly without sex or gender biblically, but this referent, we might call it, to a relational role and responsibility as father, I want to suggest, fits something in our common humanity. It fits something in our desire and our need in ways that are soul deep and they're consistent. So what makes this story so controversial and profound? What makes it so offensive and compelling? And as I said, digging into the way it may have been heard in the first century gives us even more to think about. Let's begin with the younger son. And by the way, I think a better title for this uh, parable is the parable of the two sons. It's at least maybe one better title. The younger decides he will go ahead and cash in his inheritance while his father is still alive. This would almost certainly have included selling off half their land to someone else so he can leave the family and community and go out there with his own resources. It's not like his dad could just empty his wallet, right? Or his bank account, which didn't exist. Only two verses in, this is a moment where those listening might say, wait, what is going on here? How could this be possible? And also, there's a double shame going on, I'll call it. First, he's essentially acting as if his father is already in the grave. You may as well be dead to me. I want what you have so that I can go do what I want to do. Second shame is he's reduced his father's estate by half in front of God and everybody. Someone hearing this story living in what's known as an, an honor-shame culture that's deeply communal, they may have thought, this spoiled brat is shirking his responsibility to care for his father in his old age, which he knows is his responsibility anyway. Good Lord, what if all our children did something like this? Our whole world might come apart. Now, you probably weren't thinking that way because our society is decidedly anything other than communal. But this is how they would have heard it. Shame on the father, too, they might have thought. How could he let his selfish son treat him like that? But the father bears the shame without any obvious recrimination. Quite the opposite. Now, Jesus has not by this point in the story mentioned the older son except to say that the man had two sons, right? But listen, after the estate is cut in half, the whole family is now effectively living on the elder son's portion. If anyone is already thinking about the older son and watching this inheritance and this estate dwindle, then steam is coming out of their ears. Jesus says the younger son blows all of what he got in short order, right? And then an unexpected famine hits everyone, and he must hire himself out as a bond servant. Now he's working for somebody else's father, 
this time as a slave. And he's catching only crumbs just to stay alive. He's working with pigs of all things, unclean by every measure to the Jews. And he's starving. Jealous of the pigs and the pods they're eating. In the ancient Near East, carob pods is most likely what they were. They were the last resort for the poor. That's how you just tried to stay alive. The pigs are eating it, and he couldn't even eat those. Many people call them locust beans because that's what you eat when the locusts have eaten everything else. It might have even been what John the Baptist was eating out in the wilderness, not actual locusts, but locust beans, depending on how you translate that. Just know this, Jesus cannot paint this son any lower in the story except to make him a leper. He's staring down starvation, and he comes to himself. He reasons that if he can just make a lateral move as a servant into his father's house, he knows he'll be treated better, if only a little better. He's a disgrace to his family and village, and at this point, this is all he can hope for. So he drags himself home, and he's, rehear- rehear- uh, he's rehearsing this speech that he's going to give about this arrangement that he's hoping for. His father sees him coming, and he's filled with unbridled compassion, it says, for how withered he is. Plus, he should probably get out there before anybody else does. His son has done the kind of dishonoring thing for which a village mob might stone him upon sight. He's running out there, but wait, older men don't run in that culture. It's not like they're trying to squeeze in a 5K every once in a while, every every week or so for their cardio health. They don't run. They don't pull up their robes so they can run. That's undignified to expose their legs in that way. But this father runs. And there might have been a gasp, even if only under, under their breath, as Jesus is telling this part. Before the son can even get his rehearsed speech out, his father calls for the best robe, his own robe, that's what it would have been, and a ring, which is actually now the older brother's ring, mind you. He calls for some shoes because there's no way on earth you're going to be a servant here. You're my son, the father is suggesting. And the lavish welcome actually just goes too far if you're empathizing with the older son. The fattened calf is actually for the ultimate feast. It's for a full-blown banquet for friends and neighbors, for weddings and such. It's the height of celebration in their culture. But what's a bigger deal than a resurrection? A son who was dead and now is alive. You can see it that way. It's such a pregnant moment, though, right, when the the way that Jesus tells the story of the elder brother. Jesus is a great storyteller. He comes in from his duty in the fields and hears music and dancing. What is going on? He asks the servant. servant replies, and he's got to be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. What's being spent on this baseless celebration is his, actually. And it's being spent on his low-life brother. What does that make me, he might think? What does all this work amount to if, it, if the, my father has just effectively split the inheritance down the middle again? He's just been cut in half. Because that's exactly what's happening here. If, if the father is bringing the younger son back into the family... And if you imagine yourself as the fairness police, 
at all, ever? This is doubly hard for you. This is not fair, or it wouldn't seem to be. And then what he says next to his father would have been heard like this in Jesus' telling. Now you listen to me. These many years I've served you and done whatever you told me, yet you never gave me anything to celebrate with my friends. And now this disloyal dirtbag of a son of yours is getting everything again? And the irony is unmistakable if we'll see it. The dutiful son, supposedly faithful, is reducing his father to a transactional relationship, to his means, not unlike his wild brother. Interestingly, what he really wants is his own party with his own friends and one that he can throw on his terms. More could be said about that. But he believes he deserves his inheritance based on his performance. And that is a contradiction in terms. The father corrects him. He says, no, all of this is mine because you are with me. It's relational. It's belonging. He's saying, that's what makes it yours and I want to give it to you. But now my dead son, your brother, not just the son of mine, is alive. And he's with me too. That's what matters. Now come and celebrate with us. It's the elder brother's turn to be rescued from himself. It's his turn for the father to run out and get the other son that he loves, to rescue him from the far country of self-righteousness and the cold alienation of entitlement and festering anger that only starves its host. Maybe the parable should be called the running father because he's running out to both of them. The older son's resentment turns to dishonor and dishonor becomes refusal to celebrate. The heart of both brothers is exposed One has nothing left to commend him but only to open his hands and the other just wants full credit for the calluses on his. But the father's heart is the same for both. And Jesus leaves the story right there with the father's entreaty. We have to celebrate and be glad. There are many smaller arteries of truth in the heart of this story that maybe are worth mentioning briefly. For one, we just don't know what's going to happen do we? A famine, a wildfire, an illness, a recession, a war, a younger brother of sorts that might come and wreck everything you worked for all your life to secure your future. But what if you've done everything you were supposed to do and it comes undone? What if the you you've protected and the path you've justified turns into a full-blown crisis of identity? Second little artery here, maybe, is the question. Is anything we have ever fully ours? Are we solely responsible for it and thus entitled to it? Aren't the circumstances of our success and our prosperity contingent on many things, on things we didn't choose or create, like the family or neighborhood or era into which you were born? You didn't choose these things. Is it not dependent on nothing short of fortuitous connection with opportunity that you didn't manufacture? If we let this notion of being self-made define us, it will own us and isolate us as it did the elder brother. But what's meant to make the heart 
of this story beat wildly is the shocking revelation that a father like this is a father like God. There's a deep security that allows this father to be reviled and even disrespected and yet to love. In this father, there's a deep understanding that allows sons and daughters to act in ignorance and immaturity and rebellion toward him. And yet what does he do? He contends for their belonging, for their blessing, and for their growth. There's a deep generosity in him that isn't afraid of the apparent losses to himself because he is abundance and he is self-giving without measure. For from him and to him and through him are all things, Paul says. To him be the glory forever. This father doesn't abandon us. And he doesn't reduce us to our best or worst performance. He doesn't carve us up into the worthy and the unworthy. No, he gives us his own son, his own heart, who goes out to the pigsties of both self-indulgence and self-importance and everything beyond and everything in between. With the heart of of his father, Jesus is the elder brother that we all needed after all. He's in the story by telling it. He's the firstborn whose own obedience and death has brought the dead to life again. He's the older brother who shares his father's heart, finally, and who shares his inheritance with us. Just do a word search. Use your apps. It makes it a lot easier for the word inheritance in the New Testament. And you'll see the recurring theme of our shared inheritance with Christ. To his disciples, Jesus says in John 16, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and give it to you. And now the firstborn is the feast. The feast into which we are all being invited. His own body is the choice meal for the celebration. And he's the faithful son inviting on behalf of the Father. This son wants Israel and wants us to know the lavish father who loves and who loves and who loves some more. The Lord who loved Israel when she looked like either one of these sons at any given time. And when we think and live like either one at any given time. The answer is the same. Come home. Come home. It's only carob pods and a skinny death out there. In the season of Lent, appropriately, I've had to acknowledge some of the carob pods that I am settling for. And to see the entitlement that thrives in the darkness that's just off my radar most of the time. Most of all, I've had to return to a better understanding of my Heavenly Father. We all do. I've had to return again. And it's not easier when you preach it every Sunday or every, just about every Sunday. Trust me. Because life isn't static for any of us. And following Jesus isn't linear as much as we wish that it was. This is why we need things like Lent. And friends, this is why we need each other. Brothers and sisters, to celebrate with one another what the Father has done for us. Do you believe it?
Lord, help us. I have no doubt that this story lands in many different ways on many different people in here. And um, Lord, I just pray you bless them today. No amount of my talking can do what your Holy Spirit can do. And I just pray that you would invite us back to the feast again if we've been out there. Whatever we're doing out there, whether it's working and laboring and making ourselves or it's out there just spending ourselves on ourselves. Just draw us back into this feast. Even as we come and we open our hands today, I pray that our conception, but also our experience and our desire and our hope would be rewritten and reminded of this great Father that we have. Lord, you're good and your mercy endures forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.